Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pocket Size Patho Fees, a podcast from theparamedictute.com. And today we're going to discuss acute coronary syndromes. Righto, let's start with a definition. Acute coronary syndrome is sort of an umbrella term for a spectrum of conditions that will result in a reduction of perfusion to cardiac muscle such that it no longer meets metabolic demand. So let's define a couple of those terms, actually. Let's start with perfusion. Perfusion refers to the amount of blood that actually reaches an organ. This is important because blood carries oxygen, nutrients, which are vital for cell function and survival. Now, metabolic demand refers to how much oxygen and nutrients a particular tissue requires in order to perform its baseline functions and to survive. If metabolic demand isn't met, we simply get organ dysfunction and eventual death of the tissue. So the balance between perfusion and metabolic demand is a really important one that we play with every day of our lives. Acute coronary syndrome occurs when this gets disrupted. The typical cause of the disruption is a decades-long buildup of atherosclerotic plaque, which will eventually become big enough that it will occlude a blood vessel and cause a disruption of blood flow from reaching tissue that is past the side of the clot or distal to the clot. Eventually, these plaques can become brittle and rupture and cause a clot to form at the site, which can progress the occlusion of the blood vessel much quicker. Now, while the majority of cases occur because of atherosclerosis, there are some cases that may occur due to an embolus traveling from another part of the body becoming lodged in the blood vessel or from uncontrolled vasospasm at a particular side of the heart for some reason, usually due to psychostimulant drug use, for example. Okay, so let's look at some risk factors. Now, because acute coronary syndrome is so closely tied to atherosclerosis, the risk factors are pretty much copy and paste from that episode. We've seen things like hypercholesterolemia, smoking, long-term hypertension, diabetes mellitus, but we'll also add a sedentary lifestyle to this picture as well. Now, those are the acquired risk factors, and then we have the inherited risk factors, such as uh, genetics in general, gender, premenopausal women tend to have a lower incidence of atherosclerosis and acute coronary syndrome than postmenopausal women and men in general. Uh, this is thought to be due to a potential cardioprotective nature of estrogen. And finally, age. So the older someone is, the higher likelihood they have of developing acute coronary syndrome purely because atherosclerosis is a condition that builds with time. Okay, let's move on to the actual disease process. Now, I can't stress enough that this is a spectrum of conditions, okay? A big mistake I often find is that people tend to study these diseases in isolation. But we have to remember that they occur along this spectrum. So people will usually start at one end, at the least severe end, and then pick up each one of the conditions as they worsen. So they evolve through each of these conditions until they get to the worst possible one. With that said, let's start with the least severe. So let's start with stable angina. I think this is a good spot to quickly review atherosclerosis, but I have done a really in-depth episode on it, which is the one before this one. So go check that out if atherosclerosis is something that you want to study in a bit more depth. So essentially what we have is we have these risk factors that occur for a long time. They cause inflammation at the blood vessel, particularly the innermost layer of the blood vessel, causes macrophage infiltration and the release of reactive oxygen species. We then have a deposition of LDLs or lipids which will then get oxidated by the reactive oxygen species. Oxidated LDLs are toxic to tissue, so they get phagocytosed by macrophages. 
these macrophages will die and form fatty foam cells, which will just deposit and accumulate, forming fatty streaks. Eventually, this will cause a migration of smooth muscle to the site, which will then release collagen and growth factor, causing proliferation and the formation of a fibrous cap. This fibrous cap tends to keep the plaque stable, but can thin over time and become brittle, creating an unstable plaque. Awesome. So onto stable angina. So that atherosclerotic plaque that has been building over the years, while it does intrude into the lumen of the blood vessel and does disrupt blood flow somewhat, people can generally live with this without even realizing. So the actual delivery of blood to the tissue that is distal to that plaque is adequate to meet metabolic demand. Until one day it's not. So a patient with stable angina has had this plaque build to a point where it's actually going to feel fine at rest, okay? Where there's not a lot of myocardial demand, the heart isn't working particularly hard, so it doesn't really need that much oxygen and nutrients. So there's not going to be any ischemia as such while the person's at rest. However, on exertion, so for example, someone's mowing the lawn one day, or in periods of particularly high stress, so you often see it with people who are stressed out at work and that kind of thing, or receive a particular piece of news that's distressing, we get a sympathetic stimulation. And remember, the sympathetic nervous system will increase heart rate and will also increase contractility of the heart, which will increase the blood pressure. Now, the increasing heart rate and increasing contractility means that the heart is working harder, which increases its metabolic demand. So it requires more fuel, it requires more oxygen and nutrients in order to function at the level that it's now functioning at. It's like kind of revving the accelerator of the car. It uses more fuel to get to that speed and will continue to use a lot of fuel while it's at that speed. Now, remember that this person has a plaque, which means that a particular portion of their heart is going to receive less blood than is required to maintain this increase metabolic demand. So it's receiving less oxygen and nutrients than it needs, causing tissue hypoxia. Tissue hypoxia will result in an ischemic state. Ischemia is a state in which tissue becomes dysfunctional when it is deprived of oxygen. One of the things that occurs at this stage is that we get a release of chemicals called bradykinin and adenosine, both of which will stimulate sympathetic nerve fibers and create the sensation of pain, which is perceived by the patient as a diffuse chest pain. Now, the thing with stable angina is if that patient decides to rest for a second or sit down or uh, actually calms their emotional state and reduces that sympathetic drive, the heart rate will slow down and the contractility will reduce, meaning there's less oxygen demand, returning the patient back to a state where the amount of blood reaching the affected tissue is actually now adequate again. This will cause a resolution of symptoms. So it will cause the tissue to return back to normal function and a reduction of bradykinin and denosine, which means a reduction in pain. So let's move on down the spectrum to unstable angina. So this plaque that's been building up over time can actually become disrupted. The reason for this is, you know, over time we could have a weakening of the fibrous cap. We can have continuous deposition of LDLs, making the plaque bigger. And we have continuous turbulent blood flow at the site, all of which combine to cause a rupture of the plaque. Now, ruptured plaque means that the contents of the plaque, in particular collagen and the necrotic contents, come into contact with blood. This triggers the initiation of the clotting cascade and platelet aggregation, which will cause a clot to form, as well as local vasoconstriction, which reduces the size of the lumen at the site of the rupture. The rapid occlusion of the blood vessel severely diminishes blood flow distal to the site. So remember that even while at rest, your heart is beating, right? So there is a constant metabolic demand. Suddenly, perfusion is not able to meet metabolic demand even at rest. That means that the affected area is going to become hypoxic and ischemic, even while the patient is sort of sitting in their chair watching TV. If for whatever reason the clot just breaks down on its own or if through some kind of hospital intervention we're able to remove the occlusion in time the myocardium should return to normal and that chest pain should dissipate okay but what happens if we cannot reverse that clot we evolve into the next section of the spectrum which is myocardial infarction 
Now, as I mentioned, the myocardium is extremely dependent on oxygen. So it doesn't take long for it to evolve to this stage. Actually, it only takes about two minutes for the affected heart muscle to become dysfunctional after reaching an ischemic state. A portion of dysfunctional myocardium means that there's a portion of the heart that just isn't beating efficiently, which means that we're going to affect normal blood flow. Add this reduced ability to deliver blood effectively to an occlusion at the heart and we get a really, really compromised section of myocardium. And over time, usually about 40 to 50 minutes, the ischemic damage, which you know is usually reversible, will evolve into necrotic damage, which is irreversible, resulting in an infarction. Now, what happens in necrosis? I don't want to get right into it, but I'll mention a couple of things just to demonstrate how severe this damage is. Initially, what will happen is we'll have a dysfunction of the sodium potassium pump, which is a vital piece of equipment in every cell of our body. What this means is we have a collection of sodium now happening within the cell, which will drag water into the cell with it and cause cell expansion. We'll also get mitochondrial swelling and damage, which means that the cell is no longer able to produce ATP, which is basically the energy source for every cell to function. On top of this, the swelling of the cell will cause rupture and cause a spilling of the contents out of the cell. A ruptured cell is basically broken. It's done. It cannot be fixed. And some of the contents that get leaked out of the cell can actually damage cells that are neighboring it. So guys, necrosis is bad. It evolves quickly into the cells surrounding it, and it's happening quickly in patients with myocardial infarction. Now, I'll take a second here just to discuss coronary blood flow just a little bit, okay? In particular, I want to mention that coronary arteries travel along the epicardial surface of the heart, so the outer surface of the heart, and little capillaries will shoot off the main arteries and dig into the myocardium. So essentially, the thickness of the myocardium is perfused from the outside to the inside, epicardium to endocardium. I mention this because once this occlusion starts to happen in the arteries, right, the pressure within the artery reduces, which means that we're unable to push blood all the way deep into the endocardial surface. So the endocardium is actually the first place that we'll start seeing infarction because it's the first site that will actually get a diminished supply of blood. This is what's called a subendocardial injury, okay? And it's called subendocardial because the injury is occurring just below the endocardium. Now, subendocardial injuries may or may not produce changes on a patient's ECG, but it will never show up as ST elevation. So this is what we call a non-ST elevated myocardial infarction or an NSTEMI. Now, here's the thing. When the heart is in distress like this, the body is in distress, okay? As I said, we have a reduction in the efficiency at which we're pumping blood to the body. The brain picks this up, and the only way it knows how to fix this is to increase the sympathetic tone, which means that we're going to increase heart rate, we're going to increase blood pressure, which will further increase the metabolic demand, which is only going to worsen the condition. So at this stage of assessment, what we're going to see is we're going to see a patient with quite severe chest pain that's potentially growing because they're becoming worse and worse. We're going to see tachycardia, potentially irritability, we may see hypotension or a low blood pressure if a large enough portion of the heart is damaged. Or we may see hypertension because there's this huge sympathetic drive. The patient may be experiencing some lightheadedness due to a lack of perfusion to the brain because there's an inefficient. And we're going to see some sweating here because of this increased sympathetic drive. Now, if all of this is allowed to go on, that subendocardial injury is going to spread through the layers of the heart and eventually reach the epicardial wall, which means we result in what's called a transmural infarct, which means sort of through the entirety of the wall. As you can imagine, this is bad. It means that the availability of actual functioning myocardium is slowly diminishing as this infarction is spreading. And once we get through the entire thickness of the wall, there's an entire section of the heart that is absolutely non-functional. This can cause very quick hemodynamic collapse. 
as that infarct evolves through the thickness of the wall, we will start seeing changes in the ECG. Initially, what we'll see is we'll see an ST depression, which will then be followed by a gradual progression to ST elevation as time goes on. This is when we hit ST elevated myocardial infarction or STEMI. At this stage, we have a very sick patient. As I mentioned, they're going to be hemodynamically compromised. They're going to be in extreme pain. They're going to be very irritable or very flat, depending on if they have enough blood pressure or not enough blood pressure. They're going to be diaphoretic, which is not just sweaty. They're in a bath of sweat. And they may develop some nausea and vomiting at this stage, which is generally triggered by lactic acid, pyruvic acid, and other metabolites that are released by damaged cells over time. The more of this stuff that gets released, the more nausea is developed by the patient. So generally, the larger the action, the more severe the sensation of nausea. Okay, so there was a fair bit in that. So let's review that really quickly before we move on to some of the consequences of myocardial infarction. So remember that acute coronary syndrome is an umbrella term for a spectrum of conditions that are generally precipitated by an atherosclerotic plaque. So we'll start with stable angina, where there's some occlusion of the blood vessel, but not enough to cause any discomfort or anything at rest. However, the patient will experience some chest discomfort when they are exerting themselves or experiencing periods of high stress. This is because the increase Increased metabolic demand of the heart at that time is not supplied adequately by the body. The pain will resolve at rest and people will basically return to normal. Moving on from there, we get unstable angina, which is basically a rupture of the plaque causing a rapid occlusion of the blood vessel. At this stage, patients will usually experience pain at rest. However, this is still early stages and there's no actual infarction yet, but patients will experience some symptoms linked to ischemic injury. As time goes on, this will evolve into a non-STEMI, which means there's been a state of prolonged ischemia, which has resulted in myocardial infarction, particularly at the sub endocardial region of the heart. That infarction will spread through the wall of the heart, eventually reaching the outermost wall of the heart, resulting in a transmural infarction and a STEMI. Okay, so let's look at some of the consequences involved with myocardial infarction. The biggest one is contractile dysfunction. So as I mentioned, ischemic and infarcted tissue is non-functional. And if heart muscle is non-functional, it means it cannot contract. And if heart muscle cannot contract, it cannot pump blood effectively throughout the body, resulting in a really inefficient delivery of oxygen and nutrients to all of our organs, including our brain. Now, the contractile dysfunction that occurs is proportional to the size of the injury. So small injuries tend to not have huge contractile dysfunction, whereas much larger injuries will cause significant contractile dysfunction. What this means is if people have had previous MIs and they're having one right now, it's going to increase the size of the injury and therefore increase the severity of the contractile dysfunction, making these patients sicker. So the more MIs a person has had, the sicker they're going to be when they have the next one. Now, as I said, ischemic tissue becomes dysfunctional but can be reversed, whereas necrotic tissue is infarcted and basically is dysfunctional forever. This will lead to heart failure in the long term. So once patients have had MIs, they may experience heart failure symptoms as they age. Heart failure is a really significant issue which can cause really poor life experience and really poor prognosis going forward. It's something that I'll cover in another episode. The second consequence of myocardial infarction are life-threatening arrhythmias. Now, because of myocardial irritability and potential disturbance to the normal electrical flow of the heart, we may see some arrhythmias kick off. So you really need to keep a close eye on the ECG during an entire job with the acute coronary syndrome patient. Some examples of these arrhythmias are sinus tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, sinus bradycardia, heart blocks, premature ventricular contractions, and the big ones, ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. So those are the two main consequences I'd like you to keep in mind. However, there are some less common things that may occur, one of which is myocardial rupture. The actual myocardium can just break. This is because necrotic tissue is fragile. And so with the increased force of contraction and the increased rate of contraction, we can just get a rupture of the myocardium. That's catastrophic. Not much we can do about it in the out-of-hospital setting. Because of the weakened wall as well, we can get ventricular aneurysm, where an 
aneurysm can actually occur in the left ventricle of the heart, as well as an increase in the infarct size leading to sort of outpouching of the myocardium. Again, something that you probably won't pick up in the out-of-hospital environment, but what can happen is that at these sites, we get stasis of blood, which will result in the formation of blood clots, which can then be ejected out of the heart and lodge in the brain or in the lungs, causing a stroke or pulmonary embolus. So further complications on top of the acute coronary syndrome. Okay, guys, that is acute coronary syndrome. You can take that and stick it in your pocket. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you got something out of it. Please hit me up with any suggestions you might have, anything I can do better, or if there's something in particular you'd like me to cover. My contact details will be down in the show notes. And as always, I'll see you at the next breakdown.